Guys, we write about stuff on the internet. True. Okay? And if you do that job, there's definitely one, there's one truism, one axiom that's been burned into your brain, and that is don't read the comments. Don't ever do it. However, though, I propose an addendum to the rule. Okay. I would love to read some more comments about the Pro Se podcast. You know why we would love to read those comments? Because when you leave comments, it helps other people find the show. It pushes us up in search results. It makes it so that more people find the Pro Se podcast because you love it. But we would like other people to love it, too. It also makes me feel really good, which is anathema to what internet comments usually do That's for true. people. Yes. So, yeah, if you like our show, you want to hear us continue to do this forever and ever, please leave us a five-star review and a written review. It's that written part that really helps us out a lot. And now, on to the show. Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Alex, I uh, hear you tried an experiment at your house this week. I'd like to hear about it. <laughs> I took... <laughs> that was a good setup. Yeah, wow. That was good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right I, into it. I took debate on a little bit of internet uh, uh, virality uh, over the weekend. There was, a, there was a video that was making the rounds of this... Like mind melting way to to peel garlic or to remove garlic cloves from a bowl. So I saw this video online in like my Twitter feed or whatever. Yeah, and did not click on it because I thought I don't, I don't need you to. You thought learn how this. interesting <laughs> could it be to peel garlic? Well, also I like to force my husband to do most of the cooking. Okay. So I was like, if I learn too much, well, I do. Yeah, I mean, peeling garlic is a pretty low tech task as it exists. But anyway, this thing. Uh, I, I, I don't know exactly where it originated, but the person who's making the video is basically holding the, uh, the uh, bulb of garlic in her left hand and rotating and stabbing into the cloves with a paring knife and then pulling them out of the bulb free of the peel and just does very, it like one at a time. That seems like a vivid. real, well, it seems like a high level of difficulty it had, too. It had like a, it had like one of those satisfying, like like those uh, those soap cutting vids. You ever see oh, those? Oh, sure, Those things yeah. are like visually... Uh, pleasing to you. Right. It was like that because it was just like foom, out, foom, out. Yeah, but that's the kind of thing where you think like how many times did this person practice this one little thing they can do to right. make it look awesome and then a normal person tries it and it's an epic fail. So, so anyway, I, I'm a normal person on a sliding scale, I suppose. You're a uh, fun guy. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm an NBA champion. Um, but, uh, you know, various writers were like, I'm actually going to try it and see. Well, and sure. people did it with various levels of success. I tried it at my own home I got it to work kind of with with my good paring knife. Um, okay. you, you need like a small. You can't do it with like a kitchen or like a like a chef's uh-huh. knife or anything like that. Um, and it was fine. It was mostly without incident. I'll probably just continue doing wait, it, was it the normal way. Was it more work than just doing it how you were doing it before? It just it, it just like it has uneven results. Like gotcha. sometimes the thing splinters in half, and it's like a whole thing. It worked out better for me than it did for Helen Rosner of the New Yorker. She tweeted about this today. She wrote about it, and she tried it again today. Stabbed herself through the finger. I told went you to it's the not dangerous. Room. Yes. So I consider myself lucky that I I did it, and I just ha- all <laughs> I have is a boring story about splitting garlic cloves in half and not. <laughs> Uh, you know, five stitches on my middle finger. You know, we're going to revisit this as a new segment of Thanks. per se, just life hacks. Garlic law. Try them out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's an emerging field. Well, before we talk all day about garlic videos. Which uh, I could. I mean, I, I honestly Well, could. and I think it's worth noting this is not the only uh, internet videos that we're going to be talking That's about true. today. Oh, That's true. We're talking about a, a, 
a notable internet video man, yes. Alex Jones. Alex Jones. Uh, we have a whole main segment. We're not going to have a guest today. We're just going to break down the uh, entirely bananas series of events that happened in the uh, the lawsuit filed against Alex Jones, the defamation lawsuit filed by the Sandy Hook parents. So we'll break all that down. It'll be, it's it's yeah, it's a crazy one to get it, to. It's like hard to even sort of hint at. Like you just just <laughs> buckle up. It it rises to the level of bananas. I think yeah. I I think that's fair. Um, but first, uh, before we get to that, wanted to return to our friends at the Supreme Court. Those sure. guys. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have noticed, we're running out of uh, June Mondays here. Uh, we're yep. running low. Uh, this uh, most this most recent Monday um, was another kind of sleepy one. Uh, most of the biggest cases that we recounted for you uh, on the show two weeks ago are still awaiting a decision. But the court did get to one of the big ones that everybody has been watching. Um, got that off the docket. It said that, um, and they ruled that, both federal and state governments can bring criminal charges for the same offense. Uh, this was the case that we had talked about, as and this sort of enshrines a longstanding exception uh, to the constitutional ban on the concept of, of double jeopardy. Well, we talked about this one when we did our roundup of cases to watch, but if anybody missed that show, orient them with like the, the facts of what's going on. Yeah, uh, so the case of Gamble v. United States and it involves uh, an Alabama man named Terrence Gamble. He was a convicted felon who was pulled over and he was arrested for gun possession. It's a felony in Alabama to possess a gun if you're a convicted felon. Um, the federal government um, prosecuted him and gave him uh, a year in federal prison. But while that was going on, the state uh, of Alabama also brought criminal charges against him and gave him 46 months. Now, those two term prison terms were set to run concurrently, so he is challenging the fact that he was punished uh, you know, uh, with a year in federal prison, then for the same crime given 34 additional months right. in prison for this same thing. Um, he filed the case basically saying that the double prosecution here is a violation of the Fifth Amendment, which has the, which has the double jeopardy clause. Now that sounds pretty reasonable. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, just to, you know, to a lay audience, it might sound like, well, you probably shouldn't get prosecuted twice but you know explain why explain sort of the why that's a difficult argument for him to make yeah um while the sort of concept of double jeopardy is pretty well defined and well understood like you say even by people people who have seen the ashley judd have film. seen the ashley judd tommy lee jones right. movie yes right. uh entitled Ju double jeopardy fairly easy concept to get your head around however uh the high court has a series of precedents series of decisions that stretch back over 150 years, like 170 years, that treat um, the states, the state governments, and federal governments as uh, the term of art is independent sovereigns when it comes to the matter of pursuing criminal charges. Um, now, Gamble's legal team, as they were um, trying to challenge this long-held notion, sort of dusted off lots of like 18th century treatises and like English court decisions, founding era documents to suggest that the court has been getting this wrong for nearly two centuries. Right. Um, uh, and if that sounds like a tough hill to climb, it's true. Uh, he lost, uh, like I say, they upheld the, the this exception to double jeopardy uh, by a seven to two vote. Um, Justice Samuel Alito wrote for the majority, and this is basically just, this is, the facts are pretty easy to wrap your head around here, and he just didn't view um, this uh, sort of 170-year-old precedent as erroneous or in need of urgent correction. Um, he is, he, the sort of money quote from his opinion talks about the evidence that Gamble's legal team presented them. 
The English cases are a muddle. Treatises offer spotty support. And early state and federal cases are by turns equivocal and downright harmful to Gamble's position. All told, this evidence does not establish that those who ratified the Fifth Amendment took it to bar successive prosecutions under different sovereigns' laws, much less do so with enough force to break a chain of precedent, precedent uh, linking dozens of cases over 170 years. It's such an interesting look back into time, the idea that, that the state governments were sovereigns and all those sort of interesting questions that go all the way back to the founding of the country. It is also interesting to hear um, any justice... Alito, it would have been interesting from anybody, though, yeah. talking about the power of precedent, because a lot of things yes. come up these days where it's yeah. a question of, will they overturn Supreme Court precedent? How long does precedent have to be in the books for it to feel impenetrable? And right. We've gotten at least a little bit of an answer. Yeah. This one. And, and you know, it's sort of what what rises to the level of like one we clearly got wrong. Alito yeah. clearly didn't think so here and neither did uh, many of his colleagues. Um, really interesting. I mean, he he. Like he, he really is sort of true believer in this idea of independent sovereigns. He talks about if we accept this legal framework, this is this is basically tantamount to saying if an American is killed abroad in another country, we can't bring no one would be able to bring criminal charges here in the United States. Like it is that the distinction is that deep for him. Right. Um, but not everybody was convinced. Like I said, it was a seven to two vote. Um, the two dissents, uh, the somewhat unlikely pairing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Neil Gorsuch. That um, is an interesting yeah. set. What a duo. Yes. Um, they basically said that Alito was continuing a pattern of misreading the Fifth Amendment here um, and that uh, and they sort of parsed his reasoning here. The Fifth Amendment basically says it protects people from being twice put in jeopardy for the same offense. That's sort of the, the right. offense is the key phrase there. Alito's reading of it was that an offense can only be defined by a law. And only sovereigns can write laws. And because states and the federal government are different sovereigns, there's two different laws, so there's two different offenses. Um, Gorsuch says, you have totally messed this up, Sam. Uh, <laughs> offense, like he goes to like a, an English dictionary definition right. of offense. He's like, we're talking about the actual conduct that happened, not what you deem an offense through a law. Hmm. Um, so that was pretty interesting. I mean, uh, and uh, Ginsburg sort of took a took a... A, a, a larger, more sort of democratic view of the whole thing. Um, but Gorsuch, uh, Gorsuch sort of sums up the dissenting opinion pretty succinctly. It says, a free society does not allow its government to try the same individual for the same crime until it's happy with the result. Unfortunately, the court today endorses a colossal exception to this ancient rule against double jeopardy. Hmm. So it's, yeah, it's a really, I mean, really interesting opinion. And also, I mean, obviously this case was pretty closely watched for a lot of reasons. But um, one thing was that this idea that it would, you know, if the status quo was upset, it would allow uh, President Trump to pardon people for federal crimes and then they couldn't be prosecuted back in the States. So yeah, that was a big part of why people were watching this one. Yeah. In the, in the, in the, in the, back in the unknown wilderness of the Mueller report, this, this gained, this gained traction. Right. Uh, uh, for that angle of it. But uh, as you say, the status quo uh, was not disturbed. It was less le left intact. Um, so I guess, you know, we will see sort of federal and state prosecutors continue to bring charges, not worry about getting in each other's way. And the, well, the, the criminal defense bar will continue to uh, have its hands full. So for our second story, I want to stick with a criminal case, but this time it's one you and I can talk a lot about, Bill, because it actually involves copyright. Yeah, it's a wild copyright criminal case. Copyright um, law is one thing it involves, yeah. It involves, yeah. it involves other things. 
Yes, as Alex is alluding to, it is our first of two stories today about pornography. Yes. Which is um, a weird tactic for us to take on the show. But, sure, right. Um, but this one's actually really fascinating. I mean, the news is the news. I mean, I didn't <laughs> I didn't pick for there to be two porn stories that were interesting right. so, in a week. True. But so it's, so it's the story of this guy, Paul Hansemeyer, who, a former lawyer, Minnesota lawyer, um, who last week was sentenced to 14 years in federal prison over a very, very elaborate scheme to basically sue thousands of people uh, and try to sort of extort settlements out of them and ultimately made millions of dollars doing that. This one's so interesting to me because you don't often hear copyright and criminal charges together. You also um, don't often hear us talking about the bounds of like, what's the legal system for? Yeah, and there's and a, a clear answer here about not for this. Right, and and <laughs> and abusing the system. We talk all the time about gamesmanship yep. and the different little things you can you can, you know, strategic gain, tactics. Well, gain advantage yeah. on the margins, but imagine taking all of those things and doing them all at the same time and <laughs> yes. like that's sort of what you have here. All right, well, let's explain to people. I feel like I've gotten too excited and we need <laughs> to lay the the facts down. Yeah. So Back in 2011, these two attorneys, Paul Hansmeyer and John Steele, and there were some other people involved, but they were the ones who were charged. Um, they launched an operation that became known sort of broadly as Prenda Law. Um, and the rough outline, according to federal prosecutors, is is sort of this. Um, they used they set up shell companies in countries where you can't easily trace shell, shell, shell companies like Caribbean islands, mm-hmm. and they bought up or assigned themselves copyrights to salaciously titled pornographic films. They found ways to upload them to the internet themselves, which is really one of the key parts here that makes this quite illegal. Um, they waited for users to then download those things on peer-to-peer websites like BitTorrent. And, yeah. Right. Um, and they, they tracked the people who were doing that. Once people did that, these two attorneys, Hansmeyer and Steele, they would file lawsuits against the John Doe IP address. It's just the right. bare basic info that shows who downloaded the movie. Just yeah. like a, a copyright lawsuit against exactly, that. Exactly. So then once you file a lawsuit, you can then avail yourself of the powers of the court so you can get a subpoena and you can go to the ISP that has that IP address and say, look, this person plausibly, this IP address plausibly infringed copyrights. The court is ordering you to turn over the identifying information about who subscribes to that IP address. So once they got that, they would send a settlement letter to the people who had, to the IP address, the subscriber, and they would say, look, uh, we, we will settle this with you if you pay us a few thousand dollars. And you can imagine how people must have reacted to getting those letters that mentioned some salacious movie. Right. And so most people just settle. Yeah. So it 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 um it's a really interesting situation because it relies on sort of leveraging different aspects of these cases. One of which is money. I mean, one you it's really expensive to go hire an attorney, even if sure. you were innocent, either if you did nothing wrong, it's really expensive to hire an attorney, pay court fees, all sorts of you stuff. You also don't want this in, in a public record. Right, exactly. But I mean, even before that, I mean, you it's uh the, the under copyright law there's a thing called statutory damages, which means that even like it, it doesn't matter how much harm you cause by downloading the movie, it's an automatic yeah. Yeah. Uh, amount of money you owe. So it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars if you downloaded a few movies. And then Amber, like you said, the other thing that they were leveraging is shame and embarrassment. Sure. Not just about going to court. That sucks. I mean, you even get if, sued. Yeah. But it's even if the, you were inclined to go to court, it might not be for something like this. Exactly. Yeah. You go and then and and you know. So th- th- they said, look, like if you don't want to deal with any of this, 
Yeah. If you don't want to deal with the money risk, you don't want to deal with the court costs, you don't want to deal with the embarrassment, pay us 900 bucks. Pay us right. 1500 bucks. Whatever. And, and, because yeah. and we'll go those... away. It'll be private. You'll never be disclosed. Mm-hmm. And because it was those relatively low numbers, that a couple things happened. One, they seem to have found like that sweet spot where a people will spot. just pay to yep. make it go away. And also then they started doing this as a volume game. Because exactly. to make a lot of money at that sweet spot, you've got to do this to a lot of people. So they did this over and over and over again for about three years, from 2011 to 2014. And they did it thousands of times. And thousands of people um, reached these settlements. And ultimately, they made about $6 million, according to prosecutors, from from doing this. I mean, not, not, not bad work if you can get it. Not that people should illegally download anything, any kind of media, because that's not great. But this is particularly insidious, that they like planted it specifically waiting for people to sort of fall into that trap. I was joking. It's very bad work if you can get it. Yeah, and they did all exactly. sorts of, there's all sorts of other stuff that if you want to go read the documents, you can. I mean, it's, they they lied in court. They uh, did okay. all sorts of other um, mm-hmm. unethical things. They've yeah. both been disbarred. Um, so it was, it was really bad. But for, you know, for a couple of years, it mostly just drove like defense attorneys nuts it drove yeah. victims nuts it occasionally, occasionally a, judge a judge would get pissed mm-hmm. off but f- the it, it really took um a judge putting it all out there and explaining what they were doing in this one really scathing ruling back in 2013 in which he ended it by recommending that the u.s attorney's office in california look into what they had been doing yeah whenever a judge goes to that length yeah they've gotten really fed up and you would imagine prosecutors take it pretty seriously and actually start to dig in right so they they did and um you know from from that ruling things went downhill pretty quick there were sanctions rulings there were attorney's fee rulings um eventually prenda the central entity they used a lot of different shell companies but eventually the central one dissolved as a firm um and in December 2016, after sort of a period of silence on this front, um, Hansmeyer and Steele were both arrested and charged with a wide range of federal fraud and money laundering and conspiracy charges. Mm-hmm. Um, Steele pled guilty in March 2017, uh, notably sort of confessing to what had happened and offering to work with prosecutors and testify against Hansmeyer. Hansmeyer was originally going to fight the charges, but he reached this sort of um, conditional plea deal where... Uh, it's not a plea deal. He reached this conditional agreement where he would plead guilty, but um, he has the the right to appeal. So he's okay. going to do that. Um, but uh, this week we got the sentencing for Hansmeyer. And, you know, prosecutors had asked for 12.5, 12 and a half years. And, and that seems pretty steep. Yeah. Um, they said that Hansmeyer was really the operation, that Steele was this sort of like brash operator who, you know, was the face of it, um, okay. but that Hansmeyer was the legal mind behind it. Mm-hmm. And l- last week on Friday, the judge went even further than prosecutors had asked. She sentenced him to 14 years in federal prison. She really laid into him in the hearing. Um, she said that uh, that it was, quote, almost incalculable how much your abuse of trust has harmed the administration of justice, because it really... It really does get to the, uh, you know, this the idea that the court system is not supposed to be a place where you get scammed by people. Right. Yeah. I mean, I said this before. You're like, what are the courts for? Right. Yes. And, the, and, you know, that, that, that not only, it, it, like, that there's this extra layer of ethical rules that they're supposed mm-hmm. to, you know, it just, it's, um, it's really, uh, it's a, 
it's a messy story and sort of a cautionary tale for attorneys who want to push those boundaries. We started out by saying that there are these little things that you can do that you can, you know, that you can file lots of lawsuits if you want to. There are serial litigants all the time. Sure. But when you start doing all of those things and you keep pushing the boundaries and then you're like, oh, it doesn't matter if we upload the movie ourselves. It doesn't matter if we do this, we do that. Eventually, you get into a situation where you're running a massive <laughs> federal crime racket. Right. So um, be careful out there, folks. Law360.com. It's a great website if you want to have some hard-hitting legal news or if, say you want to listen to a really good podcast. Great, in fact. But did you know that you can also come here to advance your legal career? You can come here and find your next gig in the legal industry. Yeah, we have a job board. And so if you're an associate, a paralegal, um, a partner, and you're looking for a new job, you can head over to jobs.law360.com. And that applies not only to people seeking jobs, but of course, if you are a partner, if you are a hiring manager and you're looking to bring some new blood into your firm, the people that you're looking for are coming to our website. You can reach out to them on the job board. Again, that's jobs.law360.com. And for employers out there, uh, feel free to use the promo code PROSAY, P-R-O-S-A-Y, for 25% off your listing. Again, that's PROSAY, the promo code P-R-O-S-A-Y. For our main story today, we're talking about Alex Jones. Uh, there's a really interesting case that's had a lot of twists and turns that we want to get to, um, where the families of the victims of Sandy Hook have sued him for defamation and some other things, and it's really heated up this week. So that's why we're talking about it. Yeah. It yeah. involves well, it involves Alex Jones and Alex Jones's favorite thing to talk about: documents and just and and you know litigation behavior and uh, it's all sanctions and attorneys and it's. Uh, I well yeah I mean there's like there's an argument to be made that like. He is like such a like crackpot that like you don't do like it's not good to like even draw attention to it. But this like went far beyond. This is such a crazy story of like the way the lawyers get involved. And let's 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 reorient people on, yeah. on what happens. Yes. So as Amber alluded to, in case anyone forgot, I can't imagine that anyone did. But in December 2012, um, there was the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. A gunman killed 26 people, many of them very young children. Um as often happens in cases of terrible tragedy like this, uh, conspiracy theories pretty quickly arise. We saw it after 9-11. We see it in a lot of these situations. Um, most of them center on the idea that this shooting didn't happen and that the people involved, that the parents, the grieving parents were actors or that and that, you know, it had been this. It's a false flag a false for flag, government right. indoctrination. Exactly right. and things. There's a lot yes, of terminology yes. used about these conspiracies. False flag, crisis actor. That's where you hear. All exactly. Kind of so it is a truly despicable thing to say to people who are grieving a situation like this. But is it? Actionable is, yes. the, is the interesting question. Yeah. And um, so in 2018, uh, relatives of several victims of the shooting sued Alex Jones, um, who we alluded to him, but he, he is a conspiracy theorist. He runs a website called InfoWars. Um, He's risen to prominence over the last several years. Um, if anybody's not familiar with him, I would be surprised, but... President Trump has praised him in the past and that raised his profile quite a bit. So, yeah. yeah. So they claimed that Jones was the 
the driving force of these, if not the if not the true originator of them, yeah, like, that but, he was that he broadly disseminated. I mean, he has millions of followers. Yeah. That, right. he, that he pushed these ideas, and that 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 led to them being harassed by people. That people are coming to their house trying to take pictures, accusing them of this conspiracy, yeah. and that it put them in real danger. I mean, everyone. I mean, there was the Pizzagate thing a couple of years ago that was also a similar conspiracy yeah. theory that eventually saw a guy show up with with a gun. And so, Jones was was you know prominent in that as well. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the the argument here is that the that I mean, first of all, that it's defamation yeah. that it, that you know that it cast them in this false light that right. that harmed them, um, but the also invasion of privacy, infliction of emotional distress, and a few other. Claims under Connecticut's state laws. The yes. case case was filed in Connecticut state court back right. in 2018. Yeah. Um, and Ed, for the reasons that we've laid out, obviously an extremely emotional case, extremely acrimonious case, you know, given given the, the horrific event that, that set it in motion and the charges uh, being alleged. Um, but it was moving along in Connecticut state court like any other matter. Uh, the two sides were arguing over the very boring uh, issue of discovery, turning sure. over documents uh, that, you know, are, you know, of issue in the case. Um, the Jones team had produced some documents, but the but the court had ordered it on several occasions saying, you, you have not given us, you have not done a full disclosure of the documents that we need to weigh the case, um, specifically the email records. And that was sort of the, that, that was the latest ask by the court. They mm-hmm. had asked uh, at the end of April to turn over your salient email records relating to the Sandy Hook uh, affair. Um, in response, the Jones team uh, just did what is not an uncommon tactic in sort of in bitter lawsuits, where they just dumped a massive amount of email correspondence, like like many terabytes of email data, to the court uh, in May, and basically basically said at that time, we don't even we know some of this is not germane to the lawsuit. Right. Uh, we didn't have time to cull it. You got to go through it and figure it out. And that kind of thing happens all the time in lawsuits where, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, one party will, for whatever tactical reason or even just because they're annoyed, may say like, well, yep, yeah, here's all the stuff. You figure out what you need. You out flood of this. the zone and you make it annoying for, for the other side's counsel to go through it and see yep. what's going on. But that ultimately led to what we're talking about this week. Yes. Uh, so they they dump this email trove. Uh, plaintiff's counsel for the counsel for the Sandy Hook families hands it over to their um, consultants. They have a consultant team that goes through the metadata yep. to parse what is and is not relevant to the case. And these consultants um, stumble upon an image within the emails uh, that is child pornography. And we oh. should say all of this all of this is derived from legal filings in the case, from the yes. documents that the plaintiffs had filed sort of explaining this course of events. I just thought it was good to sort of source yes. ourselves. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, yes, so uh, they come upon this pornographic image, child porn, um, uh, understandably rattled, I think, uh, is fair to say. Um, I wasn't there, but I can imagine what the reaction might have been. Uh, the consultants uh, alert plaintiff's counsel. Plaintiff's counsel immediately calls the FBI, uh, as they are obligated to do under federal law. Um, they hand the entire data set, the entire email data set, over to the FBI. The FBI conducts its own investigation, dives deeper into the data, finds a lot more child pornography, many, several images uh, considering child porn in the InfoWars email records. So can they figure out where it originated? Because that becomes, I mean, there's a lot of um, yeah. slightly hysterical headlines about Alex Jones sending child porn, and I don't think that's quite definitely what definitely. It's yeah, all of the all of the images that they found were sent to InfoWars. So okay. the idea is like somebody could just send you, you know, 
kitty porn as an attachment yeah. uh, to, right. to your email, and then you have an obligation to report it and do all of this. So, but since there was so much of it, it's not clear whether or not uh, they ever even saw it. The Infowars attorney, the, the Alex Jones attorneys say we didn't even know it was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is, it's in there, and it's not clear how it got in there, right, uh, or what. But obviously, the FBI um, was very concerned by it and intervened in this like ongoing case. And what's so interesting here is that, like, uh, you know, the the attorneys for the plaintiffs here, for the parents, um, they privately informed the FBI of this, they say, and they then privately informed yes. Jones's attorney. I should have this. been clear about this. None of this was in filings yet. They're just talking about this among themselves, parties in the lawsuit. Right. Yes. I mean, because that could have been another litigation tactic, you know, where you, you, you file a public document knowing that people will see it. And <laughs> yes, sure. yes, yes. But apparently from what they say, none of this was out there yes. in the public. That was until Friday when Jones made it so that yes. it was, you know, that on the show, he he talked about the incident. He had his attorney on, this guy Norm Pattis, who was representing him in the case, mm-hmm. um, on his show on Infowars. And over the course of the show, he got increasingly agitated by the by what he saw as an effort an effort to to frame him for for child pornography. And he he implied that it had been done by the plaintiff's counsel in in this case and that he thought um, that he thought that his possession of or his, you know, company's possession of child porn was a false flag. In so many words. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah. And um, uh, that, you know, so he starts talking about how he's going to put he wants uh, he he's offering a reward to find the people who who did this. He puts a bounty. Yeah. And he says he's a million dollars to put your head on a pike and and the, all this this other stuff about and you know his attorney is sitting there the whole time and, yeah yeah, um, yeah I, I feel I, I feel like we need to reiterate that Jones has his attorney on the show right and they're sitting there talking about this very serious allegation that's not even gone public yet. and they've mentioned they've mentioned uh, this attorney I believe it's Chris Matei he, they show they say on the show Chris Matty I'm not sure how you pronounce it but they. They show his image. Um, he is they, count- they linger he, yeah. on it on the screen, and um, he is counsel they- for the Sandy Hook parents. Yeah. yeah, and and um and then at one point Jones goes into uh, this rant. The point is that somebody directed child pornography into your email accounts, hoping that you would open it, so that when you opened it, there would be direct evidence that you had viewed knowingly and, and possessed child porn. And now, magically, they want metadata out of hundreds of thousands of emails they got, and they know right where to go. What a nice group of Democrats. How surprising. What nice people. Chris and Maddie. Chris Maddie, let's zoom in on Chris Maddie. Oh, nice little Chris Maddie. What a good American. What a good boy. You think you'll put on me what? Anyways, I'm done. Total war. You want it? You got it. I am troubled by that clip i mean it's um it's really tough to listen to him go on the screen i mean alex jones saying crazy stuff on his show is certainly not news but the idea that then it gets pulled into like i was saying like an active lawsuit yeah well it's also just just really troubling the idea that you're an attorney just doing your job and now alex jones is showing your picture to all of his followers and pounding on it and screaming at you on his show right and um we'll get into it in a little bit but obviously they viewed that 
what what we just heard as a threat against him and it's you know it's hard to hard to argue against that right and um i think the other really interesting thing about the show on friday was that um like i said the lawyer was there the entire time this guy norm pattis and um He's getting increasingly I mean, he he obviously took on Alex Jones as a client. Everyone deserves defense counsel. And sure. um, uh, but he's getting you can tell he, I mean, he's a lawyer. You can tell he's he, he understands. I mean, earlier in the show, when when he was putting out the uh, the, the bounty on, uh, that that he was explaining to him why that's not a good idea. You don't want to have a contingent. Uh, you don't want to have someone's testimony be contingent on money. These really yeah. feel like the kind of things you I'm sure many attorneys have had to explain all sorts of things to clients, but it's the kind of conversation you expect to have behind closed doors. It's, it's live not, on the air. Yeah, this is on the air. So, um, so, at, and then at one point, he really seems to he he turns it up and seems to really get frustrated with Jones and and say, "Look, like here's here, I need I, I need to say some some stuff real quick." Yeah. Uh, if I had one gift I could give you, it would be to put Sandy Hook in the rearview mirror forever. I hate to see people put a burr under your saddle. It's I, not here, Sandy no, no, Hook. no, no, stop. Stop. You're going to listen to me. You brought me down here. <laughs> and it and it, it goes on and on. And he, you know, he and then he gets in. I think he gets in what the reason why he came on the air, which was to say all the stuff that we said that was sort of favorable for Jones, which was. It it appears that this was just sent to you by right. someone yeah. maliciously, and it it appeared in your inbox. You didn't open it, and like you know, that's the way that a lawyer would handle that situation. Sure. And um, it's yeah. So it was it was to to see that kind of yeah. um sort of how the sausage gets made in terms of how a attorney deals with a client. Yeah, and to see it all happening live was um, yes. Uh, yeah. Like you said at the beginning, banana land, absolute black is white, up is down stuff. Um, so that happened. Uh, it was crazy. Uh, and everything kind of bubbled up, uh, this week. Um, there was, uh, a motion from the Sandy Hook parents attorneys that had based that notified the court of all the stuff that had happened, uh, specifically about the broadcast and saying like, look, there's been a pretty unambiguous threat to plaintiff's counsel in this case. Right. Uh, can you do something? Um, there was a hearing on Tuesday where the judge, a woman named Barbara Bellis, um, essentially in open court, reads long portions of the transcript of uh, parts of what we just heard uh, to the court. Um, and she was clearly not happy, uh, as sure. you might imagine. The Jones attorneys um, had made some, like, some perfunctory defenses of the behavior. They pointed out the fact that after the broadcast that we just listened to, Jones had issued an apology the next day. Uh, but the judge, Judge Bellis, was cl- clearly didn't think it was something you could just put the genie back in the bottle after you go on TV and do something like that. Um, she just mentioned, you know, if you like, like you were saying, Bill, if you come upon, or if it's if it comes to light that there were, you know, porn, ch- child porn, you know, sent to you, there are steps that you can take. Uh, to like sort yeah. of mitigate that and make a claim that it was done in bad faith or done as a sa- an act of sabotage within the confines of the court system. Um, but then she had this to say. What is not appropriate, what is indefensible, unconscionable, despicable, and possibly criminal behavior is to accuse opposing counsel through a broadcast, no less, of planting child pornography, which is a serious felony, and to continue with the accusations in a tirade or rant for approximately 20 minutes or so. So she's saying 
there were ways to handle this. Going on your TV show uh, and yelling it's about it, it, putting and out a bounty, this is considerably not it, Chief. Right, and and it, at one point, I mean, uh, she did say, like, I don't know how to read this as anything other than a threat. It was, yeah. like Because yeah. um, that was in question. You know, he said it wasn't a threat. It was... It yes, was, yeah. well, and his, his, his speaking style is so unhinged that he kind of just, like, is sort of tossing off threatening statements... Like, like maybe not necessarily directed at the guy, but then also, you know, it, the, the the pounding clip you heard was him like literally smashing a picture of the guy's face. Like that's, you know, so taking all that on balance, um, she, uh, Judge Bellis, sanctioned Jones uh, and his attorney. She issued a formal sanction uh, this week by saying she would uh, deny uh, the Jones legal team the opportunity to pursue sort of special motions to dismiss for the remainder of the proceeding. Um, and she awarded attorney's fees to the plaintiff's counsel um, for all of the work that sort of that 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 arose from this child porn incident. She right. also denied this motion, this sort of weird motion filed by Jones's attorney asking oh, yeah. to stay the case, yes. saying that um, that you know that there was now just that there were complications that arose from him being on the show from and Pattis. That, yeah, that that yeah. So it's. Um, this is all really incendiary to be at such an early stage in the case. We're only in discovery. So. Yeah, I mean, discovery is pretty boring, as I as I began <laughs> this by saying. So. Um, but yes, um, so she was clearly perturbed, clearly ticked off about this whole thing. Um, she ended the proceeding on, she ended the hearing on Tuesday by, like I say, sanctioning the Jones team uh, and then sort of set the stage for them to get a trial date uh, in the near future. So, um, like you say, this is supposed to be the perfunctory, boring stage. It's not been, and I can only imagine uh, what the trial might hold. That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our contributing reporter this week, Jimmy Hoover. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to the show, rate us, and review us. It really helps people find us. And thanks. See you again next week. <laughs>